So we are going to be uh, jumping around in Proverbs again as we continue our series, uh, as we just discover some themes in Proverbs. And so as we turn our attention now to, to God's Word and what He has for us, would you join me in prayer? Father, we need you now as we turn our attention from hearing all the incredible things that you are doing. God, I pray that you would turn our hearts and our eyes and our minds and our thoughts to the foundation of this, where we find the truth of your Word, the beauty of your Word. I pray you would give us soft hearts and minds that would understand and, and hearts that would love the beautiful things that we find here. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the theme this morning, I just want to kind of jump in, is scoffing, which I'm sure is high on all of your lists of things that you are hoping that we would discuss and handle in church. And so we're going we're gonna, to, it's an important theme to discuss because scoffing is something we see quite a bit in Proverbs and through the New Testament. And, and it carries with it some, some weighty consequences. Scoffing is, um, it's, it's something that, that, is, that God attaches pretty heavy language to as far as avoiding scoffing and what happens to scoffers. And so just a couple of these places that kind of help us understand how serious this is. In Proverbs 19.29, it says, Condemnation is ready for scoffers and beating for the backs of fools. And then he says in Proverbs 24.9, The devising of folly is sin, and the scoffer is an abomination to mankind. So just in those two verses, we see that, that this, for scoffers there is condemnation, and that scoffers are an abomination to mankind. So we can certainly see this is not a good thing, right? I mean, being a scoffer is not a good thing. It's, it's a dangerous thing, and it's something that we should not be. And so, the, so there you go. That is the, the main just, uh, gist of this is don't be a scoffer. The end, right? So we can probably just all put our hands in the middle here and say, okay, clearly, abomination to mankind, ready for condemnation. We should definitely not be scoffers. Let's not do that. All right, and then break. But you may be wondering, what is a scoffer? That would probably be important information to know. What does it mean to be a scoffer? And how, how is it that, that this comes up in our heart? And the thing is, and this is what we need to understand even before we go into the definition, that this morning has the potential to feel a little heavy at the beginning. And then, as always, there is hope that God gives us. But, but what we have to understand from the beginning here is that scoffing is not something that we just find out there and in other people. Scoffing is something that we are all prone to. It's in our nature. Our, our nature is bent towards this. It is, it is in all of our hearts to some degree. And the effects of it, when it is left unchecked and not noticed and not combated against, are disastrous for us and for those around us. And this is one of the great dangers. And we'll look at how in the New Testament that this, is, this posed such a great danger to the early church this idea of, of scoffing. And um, like I said, it, it comes naturally to us. And the problem is, the reason why it's hard to sometimes to notice is because we can be so immersed in a culture of scoffing that it just seems normal. It just seems typical. Like, that's just, that's just how we are. I've said this before many times about gossip, that often the only people who think they, they don't gossip at all are those who are so immersed in a culture of gossip that it just seems normal to them. 
That's, that's just the reality of that situation. And, and it's the same holds true with scoffing. I would be so bold as to say that if you get through this message and think none of this relates to you and, and hear all this and say, yep, that's not, a, that's not an issue to me, then, then I would say that that's probably because you are so immersed in it that it just seems normal. Like if you've ever been with somebody who um, starts to, to gossip to you and it's like textbook definition gossip and then they respond and they say like, well, well I don't, this isn't gossip, but as if that like cancels out the definition of gossip. And, and, what, and so you can think like, oh, because I say it's not, then that means it's not. And so, so the same thing happens here with scoffing, that we can just feel so normal and so natural to just function this way that we don't even notice that it is what it is. And so what we need to do is we need to um, diagnose that. We need to look at Scripture And so that's the aim of this. The aim of this message is to help us diagnose scoffing within our own hearts and our own congregation and then to purge it. We want to look at how the Bible defines scoffing and and why it must be purged and then how do we purge it? How How do we get this and fight this in our own hearts? In Proverbs, we get a, a picture of scoffing, so now we can go to kind of a, a definition. And a lot of us, if I just kind of took words and you said, okay, what is scoffing? Some of you might um, say, well, it's, you may get a picture of someone who mocks a lot and will mock people or um, be kind of insensitive to things or, or, or be maybe pessimistic about um, a change or um, things like that. But but when Proverbs, we see kind of this picture take shape. And one, one commentary that, that I read um, kind of summarized it, saying that the, the scoffer is a mocker, he is the antagonist of the wise, and that all of the terms applied to this mocker entail aggressive pride. It's just such an interesting way of, of saying that, aggressive pride. In short, kind of, scoffers mock truth. Scoffers are dismissive of others or of different ideas. They can be calloused to other people's pain, and they they don't seek understanding. They're defensive and protective of their own position and comfort rather than seeing to the care of others. Like, that's kind of the, the ugly picture that is painted by the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 21, 24 says, Scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. You see, scoffers are, are arrogant. They reject God's wisdom because they see themselves as wise. And they, they have this idea that they, they, it's the person that kind of jumps to conclusions and forms opinions quickly and then sticks to them stubbornly. Right? That's the, the scoffer hears of something. That's the, that's the person that, that hears a situation or something that's going on and they form an opinion quickly. Because I know, I know the whole situation. I already know where that's going. I know why somebody did that. And they form strong opinions. And they form them quickly. Robbie mentioned this last week and, uh, and, and shared this proverb, which fits here. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. But the scoffer forms a quick opinion because they're relying on their own wisdom. They're so sure, they understand and see everything so clearly and properly, they, they just, they've already formed their opinion on the matter. And connected with that, Proverbs 15 says, A scoffer does not like to be reproved. He will not go to the wise. 
See, because, because the scoffer already believes they are wise and already believes that they've reached the proper conclusion, they don't need to hear or listen from anyone else. They don't want correction, so they don't go to the wise. They hear, they hear a sermon and they think it's for somebody else, or they don't ask for counsel because they don't want to hear what they don't want to hear. I mean, have you ever been in a situation, look back on your life and think of times where maybe you've gone astray and you've been, you've been in, a, in a season of self-justification where you're going down a road and you kind of know that this isn't really the road you're supposed to go down, but, but you've resolved in your own mind that, that this is the road that you want to go down and you've justified why it's okay. And usually in those situations, the last people that you want to talk to or seek counsel from are people who are going to push back on you. You just want to surround yourself with people who are going to agree with you and validate the thing that you've already decided you want to do. That's the heart of a scoffer. Because a scoffer feels so um, convicted that they're right and their understanding is right, they only want to surround themselves with people who are going to agree with them. They do not seek counsel from the wise. It's that mentality that, that led Paul to deliver this passage, which is Arguably, it's, it's one of the most sarcastic passages in Scripture, which makes it one of my favorites, because um, it validates my humor, which is fun. Um, but 1 Corinthians 4, he's dealing with people in the church at Corinth where he's trying, he's pleading with them to, to, to uh, listen to the teachings and to not have these divisions among them. There's all these divisions. And he's dealing with a group of people who have kind of determined that they know what's right and what's wrong. And anybody that doesn't agree with them is, is wrong. And so they find themselves kind of combating with the apostles. And so Paul takes the sarcastic approach and says, Well, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. So he's, he's getting to this place with, as he's writing, and you can see kind of his passion coming out, but he's saying like, oh, look, yeah, you're right. You don't need anything from us. Why would you want to listen to us? We've been imprisoned and beaten. Like, clearly, we are not good people to listen to. You've already become kings. You already have everything that you want. That's the heart of a scoffer. I already know what I want. I already have everything. I don't want anybody kind of poking any holes in it. I don't want to be confronted with anything new or anything from Scripture that would con- confront anything that is, is going on in my life, what I've already determined that I want. And that's a big question about how we approach God's Word. Do you, do you approach God's Word and filter it through your own settled views and opinions? Or do you approach your opinions and filter them, your views and and your opinions, and you filter them through God's word? The scoffer forms a conclusion and looks for scripture that backs up what I already hold on to. We see this in the New Testament often among the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are an interesting group of people they're typically classified as the bad guys in the New Testament, often trying to trick Jesus or, or um, like trick him into saying something that'll turn the crowds against him. And often they get labeled, the ones who are trying to do that, they get labeled as legalists. 
that are works-based and they're pushing against the grace of God that Jesus demonstrates as D- Jesus would hang out with sinners and, and the Pharisees were like, oh no, we're much better than that. And so that's kind of the picture we get of these Pharisees. But I think the most common attribute of Pharisees in the New Testament is that they were scoffers. And one of the many times that Jesus spoke about money, he's speaking to Pharisees and, and his disciples and he says this, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so he's talking about, he's talking about money, and he's saying, like, look, you can't worship both of these. It's kind of an all-or-nothing deal. And the response of the Pharisees is this. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed, or another, um, another version is translated as scoffed at him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So when confronted with Jesus, as Jesus is teaching them, this is how the kingdom of God works. This is what it looks like to love God and to love others. The Pharisees said, no, that's not the way it is because we've already formed what it looks like. And they ridiculed him. They scoffed at him. And Jesus says, you're justifying yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. It's an abomination in the sight of God. Do you ever find yourself, this is, this is hard, we have to ask ourselves hard questions, but have you ever found yourself criticizing or being critical of people that you see as kind of extreme in the faith? just seem like, oh, they seem like they they just, I mean, look, I'm all for going to church and all for reading the Bible and believing in God, but they're just kind of extreme. Like, they're always, they're always, they just seem like they're acting so radically. And and looking at them and saying, like, I'm not going to be legalistic. Like, you need to have some balance. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, um, we were talking about friendship, a couple of my dear friends who jumped in the car and drove across the country to to be there for us when we um, when I lost my mom and those two friends that we kind of had a roller coastery relationship and there were definitely times that I didn't like them very much and didn't want to be around them very much and a key season of that was later in our college years um, where they just I, I they they read their Bible all the time and it drove me crazy like I remember hanging out with them and I'd be like they they would just be talking about God and they would talk about like what it meant to follow Jesus, and, and I just, like, I wanted to talk about basketball, and so they just kind of annoyed me, and so I kind of built this paradigm in my head where I'm like, you know, they're just kind of legalistic, like, they just feel like you have to be reading the Bible all the time, and all the answers have to be Jesus, and so when I would share things that I was struggling with, they were always pointing me back to Jesus and pointing me back to Scripture, and it was, it was annoying to me, and I was dismissive of their habits and said, man, you just, I, like, I'm free from your type of legalism. I don't have to do that all the time. And it, it's interesting because scoffers deflect when confronted by other Christians doing things that they don't do. Like, we become critical of others in hopes of justifying our own lukewarm Christianity. Well, that's extreme Christianity. Like, I just have the normal kind But here's the thing, with my friends, it didn't occur to me that the reason I thought they were putting off a holier-than-thou vibe was because they were actually holier than me. 
it turns out that I was far more the Pharisee in the relationship. Maybe one of the most startling pictures of scoffing is found in Matthew 16. Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, and this is a very um, well-known passage to those of you that have grown up in the church and have been following Jesus for a time, but um, often Jesus was eluding those kinds of questions. He made it clear in other ways, but um, he, they're asking, like, they, people just want to know who you are, and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're, you're the Christ. So he makes this great confession, and then Jesus follows this up with saying, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So we've seen in, in Proverbs that, that scoffers are often arrogant and feel like I don't have anything to learn. I've already, I'm polished, I'm, I'm set, I don't need any counsel. We see that um, scoffers often turn and are critical of others who are passionately following Jesus because it brings conviction, and I feel conviction. I don't know what to do with that, so the only thing I can do is make you the, the religious nut so that I feel normal and feel okay. And then here, we see Peter, who's just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, being rebuked because he scoffs at, at God's plans. See, scoffers don't want to hear about God's plans when they don't match their own. Scoffers love to hear. When we have a scoffing heart, we love to hear God's word and God's plan when it matches what we already believe and what our own agendas are. So when Peter is confessing that Jesus is the Christ, he wants that to be true. He wants him to be the Messiah, and he proclaims it. And so that's a great thing. But what you see, what comes out, is that Peter is thinking, well, yeah, because if you're the Messiah, that means you're going to be king, and then what happens to me? I'm with the king. And so Peter's excited about this, and he's saying, all right, this is great. You're going to rule. We're going to show everybody. We're going to be vindicated. And Jesus says, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be arrested, and I'm going to be killed. And so Peter rebukes him and says, no, 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 no. That's not the way it's supposed to go. Jesus, you're supposed to be, this is, you, I already understood that you're the Messiah. I already proclaimed that. So if you're the Messiah, that means this. And he starts going down that road, and Jesus says, that's not the plan. And Peter's response is basically, you don't have the plan, Jesus. I have the plan. It's typically a bad argument or posture to take with Jesus, FYI. Have you been there? You're going down a road with God? You feel like you got it? You feel like you're having faith? You feel like you're trusting him? You feel like things are kind of falling into place and you feel like it's going well and then all of a sudden it either comes to a screeching halt or it takes a hard left and you're left wondering, what's going on? And what you don't hear is God saying, this is the plan. And you're looking at him saying, this isn't the plan, God. The plan was you were going to do all this, and then this was going to happen. And we start filling in the blanks for God. And our prayer is Jesus' wrong plan. But it's not the wrong plan. See, we tend to fill in the blanks, and we want 
we want to find the things in Scripture that are going to agree with what we've already determined is, is how things are supposed to go. And we get thrown off when we kind of veer off. And so we get really excited about it when, when, when we're preaching about or hearing or reading things that fit into our paradigm and fit into the way that we think and how things are supposed to work. I've always gotten this in my ministry. People get really excited about me preaching about certain things and then not so excited about other things. And so you might say, we like absolutely preach about God's plan for marriage. Absolutely preach about that. Way to go. But don't, don't talk about God's plan for refugees. Don't go there. Or preach, preach about how we're persecuted, how, how, we, how the country is getting more difficult for us to live in and, and how we are being treated unfairly. But, but don't talk about racism. Don't talk about that and, and that being a real problem in our country. Or that how Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in our nation. See, we don't, we don't want to talk about the things that hit us in places where like, yeah, but that's not the plan. This is where we're supposed to be focused. And so when Peter confronts Jesus on that, Jesus rebukes him because he's scoffing. So we need to be careful of this. And finally, in, in Jude's short and beautiful letter to the church, he helps the church think through and deal with this issue of scoffers. He says, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. The verse before, he, he describes them more. He says, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. If you're wondering why this is such a big deal, this is evidence as to why. If we allow a scoffing heart to be in our own hearts and to take root, then it will become the heart of a church and it will cause division and damage. The health of the church is at stake. Proverbs 29.8 says, Scoffers set a city aflame, but the wise turn away wrath. His scoffing heart stokes fires of dissent. They, they encourage distrust and disunity. They don't want peace. They want to stir things up. They don't want what is right. They want to be right. They want to protect their image or their plans or their kingdom. And in the church, when that happens, it stokes fires of division and distrust and discord. And it sets aflame the city of God. And when that happens, you should expect that the elders will protect the flock. It's a serious thing. And it's in all of our hearts. Our, by nature, we are children of wrath, the Bible says. That means by nature, we want things that are opposed to God. but there is an antidote to it. That to the extent that scoffing, scoffers are arrogant, haughty, and acting with arrogant pride, the opposite of that is humility. 
We see this in Proverbs. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. James 4 says, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So if you're seeing these two worlds, for the scoffer there is condemnation. God opposes the, God opposes the scoffer and brings condemnation. The humble receive favor, honor, and grace. So if you're choosing between those, you may be thinking, well, I'll take this. I'll take favor, honor, and grace. And so the temptation at this point can be, okay, humility, got it. All right, don't want to be, I don't want to be a scoffer, so I need to be humble. And I'm just going to try to be more humble. And so maybe you're thinking, well, that's good news because that's not too difficult for me. I'm pretty humble after all. I mean, that's one of my better qualities, which, you know, is saying a lot because I have so many good ones, but humble, I think humility is one of them. Remember sarcasm when I said that earlier? Here's the, here's the irony of this whole thing. The harder you try to be humble in your own strength, the less humble you become. Because what ends up happening, if you do this in your own strength, and you just say, okay, I'm going to be more humble, I'm going to think less of myself, I'm going I'm I'm to make sure that people know, like, I don't think I'm that big of a deal. What's going to happen is in the back of your head, you're going to be, well, but I am kind of a big deal. So, like, what makes this humble is that I'm saying I'm not a big deal, or I'm saying I'm not good at this, even though I think I'm kind of good at this. So in this twisted way, it just, it just creates more pride in us. We become proud about our humility. So what do we do? It seems kind of hopeless, except Jude gives the response. It shouldn't come as a surprise. Verse 20, he says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. What's the antidote to scoffing? The gospel. Look what he says. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy, dependent on the mercy that comes from Jesus and the hope of heaven. It's this picture of saying, battle against this by immersing yourself in God, putting your hope in God, and you do that by abiding in Christ. Like that's the calling, is to abide in Christ That's the gospel message. That's what will deliver us from these scoffing hearts is only Christ, being latched to Christ. I loved how Jeff said that. I mean, what an incredible way is he's sharing the gospel with someone who's outside the Christian faith. I mean, let me just... Let me just help you as a side note. What a a great teaching moment there. If you are presenting the gospel to somebody and their response is, oh, so everything hinges on Jesus? You're doing it right. Okay? You're doing it right. If the response is, well, uh, I guess I should go to church more. I probably should stop drinking or I probably should stop. I probably should clean up my language or you're right. I need to do this. That's wrong. You're doing it wrong. Okay. The gospel, when it's delivered, will lead somebody to say, I don't know what I think about all this, but what I do get from you is it's all centered around this Jesus. So I'm going to learn about him and know him. That's That is the trajectory of everything that we proclaim and live, is that be attached to Christ. 
When you do that, when you abide in Christ, your identity becomes Christ. My identity isn't myself. My identity isn't how successful I am or what people think of me or or what, what kingdom of mine needs to be protected. My identity and my hope is all in Christ. When Paul says this to the church in in Corinth, right before he uses the sarcasm, he says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. See, notice what identity in Christ looks like. Look what Paul says here. We often quote that I planted, Apollos watered, but God made, the, made it grow. And so I know that I've quoted it in a way that kind of says like, yeah, I did something and Apollos did something, but God, he's the real hero. He did most of it. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says, the one who plants and the one who waters is not anything, but only God who gives the growth. And he does receive a reward, but it's not from people, it's from God. So what you have here is as Paul is laboring and Apollos are laboring, they're laboring for God. They're laboring with their eyes set on God. They're laboring in a way in hopes of turning people's eyes towards God. And when those people find their growth and their hope in God through Jesus Christ, that's what they're rejoicing in because their identity is not in their own work or their own methods or their own personality. Their identity is attached to Christ. See, the antidote to arrogant pride is not acting with more humility. It's finding your identity not in your own accomplishments, but in the accomplishments of Christ. I dare anybody to walk closely with Jesus and struggle with humility. You can't help it. If you're going to be standing next to Jesus, like, I think I'm a a decent basketball player, depending on who I'm surrounded by, right? Right? So if I, I could handpick a few of you, all right, I got my eyes on a few of you, take you out to the court and I will dominate. But you bring in LeBron James or Max Katzbeck. <laughs> Just kidding, I can take him. Um, <laughs> it's all different, right? Like if I'm out there with some of you guys playing basketball, I might start to get a big head. I might start to think I'm, I'm pretty good. Then all of a sudden you throw me out there with some NBA players. I don't need to try to be humble at that point. Like there's no one's going to accuse me of false modesty when I'm like, yeah, you definitely should pick LeBron James. Don't pick me. Like that's, and then when you're walking with Christ and you see him doing these miraculous things and yeah, you reached out and you talked with somebody and you counseled them, but you see Christ actually intervening in their life and ministering their hearts and transforming them. And you look at that and you say, how do I get to be a part of this? And then when somebody says, oh, thank you so much for being there for me. And you're like, you don't have, it's not false modesty. You're like, did you see what Jesus did in your heart? I can't do that. I asked a question. Like that's what identity in Christ, it, it's a cure of that. And then as I find my identity in him, I treasure the things he treasures, which is the kingdom of God. My kingdom goes away. When you're walking with Jesus, you don't care about your kingdom anymore. You want the kingdom of God. You don't want to build a little kingdom of yours that kind of looks and has some characteristics of God's kingdom. You want the real thing. and You find joy in doing kingdom things. 
You don't find your joy in, in, a, in a particular service time or a particular hymn or a chair in a worship service or a program. You find it in the kingdom and in, in kingdom work. There's so much work to be done. And we tend to, to promote ourselves in this and, we, and we're worried about our place in it and how we think it's supposed to be done. And when we do that, we scoff, but freedom is, is forgetting about all that. When we were back at our, our previous, at our church plant, we had been sharing the gospel with this guy early on. And when I was in California, one of my jobs was, um, our, our pastor there had written a very popular book that sold a billion, gajillion copies. And so people would write a lot of letters. And my job for a short time while I was there was I got to respond to the angry letters. That was my job, which was very fitting, I think, for my personality. And so I would, I would read the book, and, I, you know, and I'd, have to, I'd read this letter, and I would have to you know, say, well, this is why we view this. This is what it's, we see in Scripture. This is why we have this view or whatever. And I would send it off, and, and that was my job. And by the time I was done with that, I hated the book. Like, I wanted to have nothing to do with this book. I thought it was, it was like it represented everything that I thought was wrong with Christianity. And I was like, I don't want to have anything to do with this. Fast forward, we're in Colorado. We're sharing the gospel with this guy. This guy has a lot of questions. He comes to our house church meeting. He's asking some questions. And somebody in our house church, who will remain nameless because I don't want to out them, but it was my father, said, said, you know what you need to do? You need to check out this book. And it was the book I hated. And it was like all in slow motion. As he said, you should check this book. I was like, no! Not that book! And he, and he, he I, I couldn't stop it. He just, he got it out. And I was like, ah, okay, yeah. And then I just like let it go. Because I'm like, but in my heart, I was scoffing. That book's not going to do anything for him. I've been sharing the gospel with him. I've been telling him about Jesus. Like this, this is the way you're supposed to do it. That book is just like, it's, it's so canned. It's just like, I, it's not going to do anything. It was like the week after that, he wants to meet early before house church. And he comes over early. And he asked this question. He said, well, I need to know, are we a church or not? And I was like, where's that coming from? Like, I was like, I don't know. You know, we're just a group of people studying the Bible, whatever. He's like, no, no I need to know. And I was like, why is it such a big deal what we call ourselves right now? And he said, because I, I was reading this book and it says, if you're a Christian, you need to be a part of a church family. And so I need to know, is this a church or do I need to find another one? And I, I was like, wait, you a Christian? And he says, I am now. It's because of the book. God used the book. The book that I hated and scoffed at and said, like, this is never going to, and God used that book to lead him to Christ and to change his life. Why? Because it didn't have anything to do with the book. It was about Jesus. He's the one who changed my friend's life. And when we scoff at things, we shut ourselves off from seeing beautiful works of God. We need to immerse ourselves in the kingdom treasure it and love it and, and pour ourselves out for it. And here's the thing. When you immerse yourself in kingdom work, you don't have time to scoff. You just don't have time. There's too many other things to do. There's, there's so much work to be done. This is what Nehemiah was talking about in Nehemiah 6. I'm not going to go back there and we preached on this a long time ago, but if you remember, he was, Nehemiah was working on the wall and people were trying to get him to come down. People were antagonizing him. Scoffers. And they were saying, like, oh, you better be careful. Like, we're going to tell the king that, that you're really trying to establish yourself as a king and, and all this stuff. And Nehemiah looks at them and he's like, what? 
don't have time for this. Am I going to come down from the wall and interrupt? We're doing a work here. I don't have time to get entangled in that. That should be our heart. That should be our mentality. Like sometimes things happen and we just kind of roll with it, but our main focus is the kingdom. We don't worry about these lesser things. We have serious issues in our area. Addiction in our area is rampant. Marriages are struggling. Children are without homes. And most importantly, there are a lot of people who do not know Jesus. And unlike in Canada, we have a lot of people who go to church and think that they have Christ because they go to church. And what they have done is created a a heavy, weighty religion that just bears down and is crushing them. And they see God as one who crushes. And they need to be set free. And the gospel is the only thing that will do that. And we need to be about the kingdom work. And we need to set our focus on that. And so as Nehemiah said at the end of Nehemiah 6, he's saying that they, they're scoffing to try to distract us from the work. But at the end of that passage, he said, But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. My hope in our church is that when the path seems to get knock you off course a little bit and you're saying like, God, I don't know if this was the plan. I don't know if you got me on the right plan. Let me help you. He does. Keep working. Stay up on the wall. Don't, don't get distracted by those things. Don't get distracted by scoffers and don't feed the scoffing heart in you. But seek the counsel of the wise and go after that and go after Jesus and pursue the kingdom and keep working. Ask God, strengthen my hands. This didn't work out the way that I wanted to and I've got people scoffing or I'm starting to scoff God at your plans but I'm going to seek counsel from godly people who are going to tell me, stay the course, keep on the wall, strengthen your hands. Begging God to do that. He didn't create us to be scoffers. It's our sin that has created scoffing in us. But he set us free through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when you've been set free from that, you realize that there's something more stable than retirement savings or family or church methodology. There's something far more restful than watching TV or fishing. There's something more freeing than, than the illusion that I have control over my time. There's something more peaceful than, than just not having anything on my calendar. And for scoffers, that sounds like foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. We hold on to that. So I'm going to have the band come up and I want us to just sing a couple of songs of response where we just proclaim the goodness of God that our eyes would be lifted to him and that we would beg God to purge our own hearts of scoffing. We would, he would purge us of arrogance that he would do so by connecting us firmly to Jesus. And when we do that, we are free to celebrate Christ together, free to to learn from one another and to grow in wisdom, free to rejoice with those who rejoice and free to be about our Father's business for his unending glory and our ever-increasing joy. Let's pray. Father, these are heavy things. 
And God, you have called us in to a life with you that means dying to ourselves. Over and over again, we are called to lay down our lives, to die to ourselves, but not not just in some self-sacrificial way, but God, you've called us to lay down our lives with Christ, that we would die and suffer and die with Christ only to be raised again with him in resurrection and in glory. That's our hope. That's our future. That's what we get to experience pieces of now that we would just latch onto Jesus. So God, I pray that that would be our heart and our desire this morning. God, that you would give us soft hearts to, to see and God, that you would search our hearts and show us if there is any sinful way and specifically any scoffing way in us. God, forgive us for our arrogance. Forgive us for our attachment to, to modes or to methods. Forgive us for, for, for pursuing anything outside of you. God, help us to be consumed by you, to be consumed by Jesus, to be attached to him and to treasure the things that he treasures, to live and love more like Jesus. Help us by the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.